I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and a deeper connection to our own humanity. This is episode 83. It's another joint episode with Melita of Tudor Times on Mary Sidney. Just a quick note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. You can discover lots of great new podcasts at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And the podcast of the month is the Cannonball. Cannonball is a monthly podcast co-hosted by two well-educated autodidacts who are attempting to read all the books in the appendix to Harold Bloom's The Western Canon. Learn more at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Also, I need to thank a very special group of people right now, my lovely Patreon patrons. So I have a really special Patreon drive going on right now in August. It's kind of like an NPR fundraiser, but more renaissance So if you sign up at the $3 an episode level or higher, anytime during the month of August, you will get one of the 2000 18 Tudor planners for free in mid-November when I ship them out, and that'll be your thank you gift. So you could either keep it for yourself or you could give it as a present. This is a special way for me to thank my patrons and give away something super cool at the same time. Right now, I want to thank my current patrons, Kathy, Jurgen, Elizabeth, Cynthia, Judith, Amy, Allison, Ariel, Barbara, Joanna, Kaylee, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Candace, Rebecca, Al, and Shandor. You guys are so amazing, and I am so deeply grateful to you. You can support the show as well and score a free tutor planner as a thank you gift by going to englandcast.com and clicking on the Patreon link. So now let me introduce you to Melita Thomas. Melita is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to the BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. And she's going to be speaking at the upcoming free Tudor Summit, September 3rd and 4th. Learn more at tudorsummit.com. It's totally free. It's going to be two days of talks by some of the leading podcasters, historians, bloggers on lots of different aspects of Tudor history. And Melita is going to be talking about her new book on Mary Tudor. So check that out. So we're going to talk about Mary Sidney. But before we do, I just want to address an elephant in the room, as it were. In the last episode on Margaret Pohl, Melita used the word niggardly to describe Henry VII. 
in terms of how he dealt with Margaret Pohl. And the word means miserly. And there were a couple of people who were curious about it. And there were a couple of people who found it offensive. So it's really important to note that the etymology is completely different than the racial slur. It is in no way related to the racial slur. I would never... I would never say that. And also in the UK, there is no controversy about this word at all. And I had no idea that there even was a controversy about it. But then a couple of people sent me emails and posted it on the Facebook page. And I realized, like I looked it up and I saw that there's apparently a controversy around using that word. So, you know, we just kind of wanted to make it clear for anybody who still had lingering feelings of um, feeling offended or uncomfortable that it's not that word. Okay, so here's Melita. I was very sorry to hear that I'd used a word that some people may have found questionable or even possibly offensive. It was absolutely not my intention to use any word that people could um, be offended by. And, I, and I'm terribly sorry if using a word that's acceptable in the UK has other connotations in the US that I was unaware of. Sounds good. Obviously, we would never want to offend anybody. Everybody is Everybody's welcome in, in Tudor England. Moving on then to Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke. What can you tell me about her? Well, it's actually quite hard to tell you anything about her. What I've really discovered is how little is known about Mary Sidney herself. Um, I was aware of Mary Sidney as she's been described as the most important non-royal woman in, in literary terms uh, of the um Tudor and Renaissance period because so much work was dedicated to her and she's mentioned in connection obviously largely with her brother Sir Philip Sidney but also for some of her own work but actually finding anything out about her is is quite difficult. There aren't an awful lot of records giving information about her as an individual. She's always an adjunct to somebody else. But what I have found out about, so uh, she she came from a family that on both sides was very close to uh, Elizabeth I. Her father, Sir Henry Sidney, had been a companion of Edward VI and Edward had actually died in, in Henry's arms. And her mother, Mary Dudley, was the sister of uh, Robert Dudley, Elizabeth's, um, what should we say, her her friend, her companion, um, probably not her lover, but the man she was undoubtedly uh, deeply attached to. So the marriage of Henry Sidney and Mary Dudley was a, was a marriage between two families that Elizabeth was uh, close to. Uh, so Mary herself, she was born in 1561 in the old palace of Tickenhill in near Bewdley in Worcestershire. Her father, Henry, at that time was Lord President of the Council for Wales and the Marches, and the family spent most of their time in that area. So they lived at Tickenhill, and they also spent time in Dublin during Mary's youth, as Sir Henry was posted there as Lord Deputy of Ireland as well. So Mary's youth was, as she travelled a, a fair bit in um, the Marches of Wales and in Ireland, as well as living at the family home of Penshurst in Kent. There are four or five siblings in the family. Um, no, actually, sorry. There were seven siblings initially, but only three lived to full adulthood. Mary herself and her two brothers, Philip and Robert. 
Philip was uh, about six years older than Mary, seven years older than Mary, and she didn't, she wouldn't have seen much of him during their youth because he went to school at Shrewsbury, and then he went off to university at Oxford. Her closest companion was probably her sister Ambrosia, died in 1575 when she was about 15. And this was the spur to Queen Elizabeth offering Mary a place at court as um, a, a gesture to to Ambrosia's parents in their grief to to comfort them. Elizabeth offered to have Mary at court, um, possibly to avoid infection. So in 1575, at the age of uh, 14, Mary Sidney went to the court of the Queen. She was probably at Kenilworth at the great pageant of 1575, where her uncle Robert made one last ditch attempt to persuade Elizabeth to marry him. Within a couple of years of joining the court, Mary was betrothed to Henry Herbert, Earl of Pembroke. Uh, He was considerably older than her. He was about 38 when she was uh, 15, so rather a large age gap. In his youth, he had been briefly married to uh, Lady Catherine Grey, but the marriage was annulled after the uh, failure of the the coup attempting to put Jane Grey on the on the throne. So Henry Harbert had married the Earl of Shrewsbury's daughter, but had no children. So he was uh, keen to find a second wife who could give him a son, but also he wanted to be um, further associated with uh, the Earl of Leicester and the and the Dudley family got absolutely no information at all about what their personal relationship was like. On the positive side, Pembroke himself was a a learned man. He was interested in uh, uh, books and drama. So we can see that they had some some tastes in common. Whether she already had those tastes or whether she developed them in conjunction with her husband, um, because obviously at 15 she was was at quite an impressionable age, isn't isn't clear. and later, there are indications that Pembroke was a man of particularly violent and difficult temper. But, uh, you know, whether whether he ever treated Mary harshly, we, there's absolutely no information at all. They had four children, uh, two boys, two girls. The little girl, the first little girl died the day after her third birthday, which obviously very distressing for the parents. And the second daughter, Anne, lived into her early 20s, but disappeared from the record uh, when she's about 23 nobody nobody seems to know quite what happened to her but the other two sons William and Philip reached full adulthood and um you know play, played an important part at the um at the Stuart court so there's Mary in her living as Countess of Pembroke in one of the most beautiful houses in England Wilton House um it's it's been significantly changed since Mary's day but it's a, a place well worth visiting very 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 beautiful they had a house in London they were extremely well off their descendants are still um in possession of Wilton House which has never had to go to the National Trust or anything like that so they they had a, a good deal of money in 1580 uh Mary's brother Philip having begun a very successful career at court uh, fell into disgrace with the Queen. He had been part of the negotiating team for Elizabeth's um, possible marriage to, to the Duke of Anjou. But Philip was very, very much against the marriage, and he wrote a letter to Queen, which was sort of publicised with his objections to the marriage. Now, whether Elizabeth ever intended to marry Anjou isn't isn't certain. She probably didn't, but she certainly didn't want 
Sir Philip Sidney, who was a fairly junior member of the court, publicly criticising her policy. So he was he was he was banished from court, and he went to Wilton to stay with his sister. And it's probably at this time that he introduced her. She was about nineteen. He was he was twenty uh, twenty six to uh, his uh, literary friends. So Edmund Spencer, Gabriel Harvey, uh, Fulk Greville, a whole range of Renaissance poets and writers. Also in the household was a was a chap called Thomas Moffat or Muffet. Possibly the um, the origin of the the nursery rhyme, Little Miss Muffet, about his daughter, but possibly not. Uh, so, the, so there was quite a circle of young poets and playwrights in Wilton House, and it was there that Philip started his poem, The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, which he dedicated to Mary. Time time passed, and we don't hear anything much more of what Mary was up up to until 1587, which was a terrible year for her. Her father died. Her mother died. She herself was very ill with something that sounds like a quinsy, you know, a, you know, an abscess in the throat, which even today they can only cure by lancing it, and that's what happened to Mary. So if you can imagine a a, a Tudor doctor with a with a sharp a sharp knife in your throat, <laughs> that's what poor Mary had to had to deal with. And but she she was very ill, and the, this the doctor Doctor Moffat wrote to uh, Philip, who was by then in Flanders. He was governor general of the port of uh, Flushing, as they called it in English, of Lissingen, I think it is in, in Flemish, as part of the English support for the Dutch attempt to um, you know, cast off the shackles of Spain. So Philip Philip got this letter saying that his sister was terribly ill, uh, which he was very concerned about. But shortly after, at the Battle of Zutphen, uh, Philip was severely wounded in the thigh and he was not as lucky as his sister. He he got gangrene and died again, pretty horribly, I think. So that was a that was a tough year for Mary. Uh, after Sir Philip's death, he was he was already, despite his being only in his uh, mid twenties, you know, tipped for the top, as we might say now. He he was highly thought of for both his his literary work and also for his political skills. He was very close to the the more Puritan end of Elizabeth's advisers, the Earl of Leicester. Sir Francis Walsingham was his father-in-law, and he was a strong supporter of the Protestant rebellion in, in the Netherlands. Mary, as she, she couldn't go to his funeral, women didn't go to, to, to funerals of, of men in those days. Uh, she was very concerned to make sure that his literary legacy was properly cared for, and she began by annotating, improving uh, putting together a, a, what you might call an authorised edition of his Arcadia. An early edition had been published in 1590, uh, not long after his death. And then in 1593, Mary organised a, a second publication of what became known as the New Arcadia, because it contained a good deal more material than the first one. And it was at this time that she began publishing her own works, starting off with translations. She did a couple of translations from the French, from Philippe de Plessis-Mornay's uh, Discourse on Life and Death, and also, um, perhaps more interestingly, a translation of a French play called um, Marc Antony by uh, a chap called Robert Garnier. And she translated it into English as Antonius. And this is the first uh, play translated or written by a woman to be published in English. And what was interesting about it, it was the start of a fashion for 
making current political points through the medium of uh, Roman or Greek history. So the original play by Garnier was really all about the the, the French religious wars, which he was a he was a Huguenot. So again, um, Mary would have been aligned with the Huguenot cause. So it, it was quite an interesting selection of a, of a play to translate. Her third translation work, also considered very erudite, was of Plutarch, one of Plutarch's uh, triumphs. Plutarch had written a cycle called the the triumphs, uh, the triumph of love, the triumph of chastity, the triumph of death, and so forth. And uh, Mary translated the triumph of death. Mary was then working on her most famous work, the versification or the um, verse translation of the Psalms. This was a work that had been started by her brother Philip. And it's not clear whether it was always a joint work and that he began it and and she worked with him on it or whether he started it and uh, she was just his sounding board. But then when he died and he'd only done up to Psalm number 43, she completed it. Now, what's interesting about her translations and versifications is their the, the style of them. Rather than just being straightforward translations from the Latin or the Greek or the Hebrew or whichever um, language she chose as her um, her model into English, uh, they were what's been described as aesthetic translations because they are concentrating on the the poetry and the lyrical symbolism of the of the psalms themselves, and they've been described as sacred parody. The idea being that. They are love poems rather than just religious works, with the the idea being that the the reader or the the psalmist um, could love God as much as um, as a romantic, with all the fervour of romantic love. Mary's um, her, the basis of her translation was the the Geneva Bible translation, which was the preferred text for the puritan end of the of the protestant church in england rather than the uh, the bishop's bible which was the official anglican um, translation and she also drew heavily on calvin's commentaries on the on the psalms as part of her work she she looked at using different um rhyme schemes and uh, somebody who's done a great deal of um, analysis a, a woman called margaret hannay into mary sydney's work has identified i can't remember 126 or 128 different verse forms in the in the psalms that she translated so they were they were a religious work but they were also a a great literary showcase of mary's um talents as a, as a poet they, they were not published in her lifetime. They were dedicated to the Queen, but uh, that, that's the work for which she is best known. And during all this period, uh, works, other works continued to be dedicated to her, but we don't hear a great deal more about her inner life. She, her husband died in the end of January 1601. That was another difficult time for Mary because her son was still underage, which meant that the um, Pembroke Estates went into wardship, which was always an expensive business. William, her older son, was also disgraced because he had had an affair with one of Elizabeth's uh, maids of honour. The girl, Mary Fitton, was pregnant and William absolutely point blank, blank refused to marry her. Elizabeth was incensed. She uh, kept she tried to keep a very high moral tone at court as as a virgin queen she it wasn't appropriate for her attendants to have affairs and 
become pregnant outside marriage. Uh, Pembroke, uh, as he now was, William, because he refused to marry, he was sent off to the tower to um, think about it. But he still point blank refused to marry her. And, you know, it it wasn't actually a crime, so he couldn't be kept in the tower indefinitely. Uh, But he was then sent away from court to Wilton. So Mary obviously was upset and angry that her son had uh, disgraced himself with the Queen. Then at the death of Elizabeth in 1603, um, both William and Mary's other son, Philip, were high in the favour of the new King James, who also appears to have liked Mary. He and his wife, Queen Anne, visited Wilton on at least two occasions and spent some time there. Mary's cousin, or the daughter of Mary's cousin, uh, Lucy, uh, Countess of Bedford, was Queen Anne's most senior lady-in-waiting. And so Mary was again close to court circles, even in the in the early years of King James. As time passed, of course, she she retired a little from from court life. She no longer lived at Wilton. She had her dower properties. She lived at uh, Cardiff Castle was one of them, which is a a very interesting place to visit. Uh, In 1612, she went abroad for her health and she spent some three years in Belgium at a place called Spa. And there she became friendly with uh, Dr. Matthew Lister, who uh, later rose to... um, he he became a physician to the king and lived well into his 90s, actually, a very, very long life. There was a rumour that they were secretly married, but there's no evidence of that. But I think one could infer they were slightly more than friends. She came back to England in 1615 and the king granted her a rather nice estate in Bedford near Ampt Hill, where she built the delightful Houghton House, which was probably the model for John Bunyan's The Palace Beautiful in The Pilgrim's Progress because he came from from that area of Bedfordshire. And she, as far as we can tell, because there's there's no more information, she divided her time between Houghton and a London property in uh, where she died in 1621 in Aldersgate Street. She died of smallpox. Uh, she had a very grand funeral in St. Paul's Cathedral. And then she was carried by torchlit procession to... Uh, Salisbury Cathedral, where she was buried. And that was the end of Mary Sidney. So when did her writing start to become popular? Was was she always respected in her own right, or did it kind of go through phases? She was always respected, yes, from from the the, the decade or the sort of the the 15 years in which she was she was doing the translations and the Psalms. uh, She was highly respected. And then there were the usual arguments about, you know, how much how much she'd done, how much her brother had done and and so forth. But, yes, yeah, she has always been held up as a as a great example of uh, female literary talent. Uh, she had a lot of influence on her niece, Mary Sidney Lady Roth, who was a, 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 a writer of the next generation. Uh, and another one, Elizabeth Clare, Lady Clare, so Elizabeth Lady Carey. Um, so she was another another writer of the time of the next generation. Amelia Lanya included Mary in her uh, a long uh, poem that she did about prominent prominent women, starting from the Queen and and working downwards. Yeah, so she so so she's always been very highly regarded. I mean, myself, I find certainly her her 
letter style, which her letters, there are very few uh, letters extant, but uh, you know, sort of half a dozen, mostly on business. But there are two or three that are what you might call letters of compliment to the Queen, which are so convoluted and uh, in the style of the time, very similar to the style in which Elizabeth herself wrote, uh, full of double meanings and uh, repetition of the same word to have a have a different meaning. It's it, there actually is really quite hard to make make head or tail of, uh, but they were very much admired at the time and given as um, they were used as an examples in in books of how to write beautiful letters. Can you tell me a little bit about? Uh, I know it, it's kind of something that happens a lot with there was a there was an artist. Uh, what was it? it was a Nicholas Hilliard who had a sister and mm. they say that possibly some of his miniatures were actually painted by her. And uh, I know there's stories like this when you've got a woman and a man who are either husband and wife or brother and sister who are close mm. that mm. you get these controversies around authorship. Um, mm. What was there with her with that? Uh, really, it, it was about how much she changed or altered the Arcadia. So the, it, it would appear from both Philip's work and Mary's work that they they were the kind of people who constantly tinker with it. So there, in as far as people can tell from putting together, you know, bits of manuscript here and there, there are lots and lots of revisions of everything that they did. So Philip, it appears, wrote wrote a poem called Arcadia, and he then made quite a few revisions to that and added added some different endings or or a, a more complex ending and the first publication of it which was called the old arcadia seems to have been based on his original manuscript then the publication of 1593 that mary took charge of became known as the new arcadia which had this new ending and some some other changes and the the question is you know did she make up that ending or does it actually come from the notes and the manuscripts that she had of his current current thinking seems to be that uh, it was his work and that she uh, used you know his his annotations to 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 make the changes with the with the psalms he he is always attributed to doing the first 43 and she did the the subsequent ones but how much they discussed his 43 before he died uh, and, and whether she input into those or whether they just um, talked about them isn't clear. Uh, John Donne, the the other uh, great poet of the era, he wrote a, an, an ode praising them both as the translators of these sonnets, uh, as as Moses and and Miriam, <laughs> biblical allusions there. So yeah, so she was always always well thought of in in her time. So something I read about her her family as well was that they supported one of the early theater troops yes well i mean in, in at that time actors could only only act if they were sort of officially belonged to to somebody suitable so there was the lord chamberlain's men and there were lord pembroke's players and and there were a few others anyway so lord pembroke's players who may in the early days have included shakespeare they the the jury's still out on that one uh but it is uh then there were the lord chamberlain's players who uh, did include Shakespeare, and they they uh, were certainly patronised by Mary and played at Wilton. And it's likely, or certainly possible, that the first um, rendition of As You Like It was was performed at Wilton by uh, Shakespeare and his company. 
uh, and it was to Mary's sons, uh, William and Philip, that first folio was uh, of Shakespeare's work was was dedicated. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so there was a, a, a good deal of support of drama. We could we could infer from that. Why why did you choose her as the person of the month, and what what is it about her that is worth knowing about and studying? We chose her because uh, well, partly to have a different perspective from just uh, politics. Uh, although, of course, looking at what we do know of her work and her, you, you know, you can't get away from the politics in that, um, I mean, particularly the Psalms, religion was a political act in those days. The relationship between, um, you know, Mary's, uh, the, the sort of political affiliations of uh, the Dudleys and the Sydneys as as being um, more radically Protestant and very much more inclined to intervention in the Netherlands than than some of the other um, uh, members of Elizabeth's court certainly much more than Elizabeth herself ever wanted to get involved she 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 really didn't want to get involved at all but she was forced into it eventually um, by circumstance and also by constant pressure from from the you know those those who are in favor of it um, so it's interesting to to try to find out more about it about somebody else who you know with a different perspective uh, but the tricky bit of course is because she was a woman and she didn't hold any high office and she wasn't a queen it, you know information about her is is not that comprehensive i think it, it's it's an interesting uh, a period generally when well, I suppose the generation after Mary's is is probably the last of the generations that were highly educated for a long time. So female education came to the fore in the 15th, well, in, in the late 15th century. And then, you know, to really gathered pace in the 1520s and 30s, um, the, the two queens regnant, Mary and uh, Elizabeth, were both very highly educated. And there was a great fashion for it in the middle of the 16th century, which which lasted probably until early in the 17th century, after which um, female education, even amongst the elite, seemed to, to slip back somewhat. I mean, there were you know, outstanding examples, but it didn't, it wasn't as, it, it wasn't as widespread as it was in Mary's generation. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think about that whole, the, all of that, that time period, even starting with, um, like Catherine of Aragon's mother and Catherine of Aragon planned out Mary's education and everything. Yeah. It was such an important. Yes. But, um, you know, by the time you get to, by the time you get to, um, the mid 17th century, I mean, uh, James II's daughters, who who became queens themselves, Queen Mary II and Queen Anne, you know, they could barely write. I mean, that, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, it, it wasn't considered at all necessary for them to be educated. Okay, so where can we find out more about her? With great difficulty, I have to say. I have been trawling, trawling all over the place to find out information. I mean, there is, as always, there's stuff in the calendars of state papers from the reigns of Elizabeth and James. Uh, biographies by Philip sort of mention her but it's mostly uh by looking by reading um learned articles in literary and academic uh, journals about literature that that the odd facts come to light the only sort of the, the best biographer the most comprehensive one is it dates back to the early early 20th century i mean it is it's uh by francis young i think it is um, 
so if you can get your if you can get your hands on a copy of that obviously we've we've done the piece on Tudor Times website and there is a bibliography which um will give some some ideas as to where you can look perfect anything else that I should be asking don't think so it's funny I'm getting I have very little sense of her personality because it's just not enough to 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 know really I'm glad she had the lover in old age Who apparently um, she it's, she she didn't leave a will. Her 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 effects just went to her sons, but uh, they rather kindly gave um, Matthew Lister a, a pension. And uh, in one of the descriptions of her funeral, uh, somebody comments that he was well worn in the Countess's service. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's just one little one little snippet on her character. <laughs> Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us about Mary Sidney. For more information on her, go to tutortimes.co.uk, or you can also see the resources available on the EnglandCast site at englandcast.com. And remember, if you like this show, the biggest way you can help it, which is totally free, is to leave a review on iTunes and to tell a friend about it. Seriously, you tell your friends to listen, right? In the next episode in two weeks, actually, I was going to do food. I'm skipping. I know you guys hate it when I do this. I'm really sorry. I try not to do it more than once or twice a year. Um, I want to talk more about food, but because the solar eclipse is happening in the US, I really have been wanting to do an episode on astronomy and on science in Tudor England anyway. And I think that now is kind of the timely time to do it. So I'm working on an episode on astronomy and on science in general in Tudor England. It was such a time of you know Copernicus and moving from this Earth-centered universe to the Sun-centered universe or, or galaxy solar system. <laughs> so I'm working on an episode on that. So stay tuned for that, and then we'll go back to food and dining and manners and things like that. Stay tuned for that, and also remember the very special Patreon deal for those of you who support me during my Patreon membership drive, as it were. Thanks so much for listening, you guys, and I will talk with you again in about two weeks. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.